Father God, we come before you and your word this afternoon. And we acknowledge that you are the one who can do the work in us that needs to be done. To give us repentance and faith. To give us heart change. To allow us to live day by day in this world having the eyes to see spiritual truth that the world wants to suppress and hide. So we ask, Lord, for your grace to do that now for us as a church family. Thank you that we can gather together in your name. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you again. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. For those of you who may be new or visiting, or maybe you've been here a while and you never got my name, um, it's good to be here with you. Uh, I want to start today by kind of going back a few years. Um, This was 2013, I believe, before my first daughter was born, and I was on a short-term missions trip to Thailand. Now, um, I think I talked about this trip before. It was a good time. We, we uh, did a lot of things that helped my faith a lot. Um, and near the end of the trip, what happened was we took this uh, long, almost day-long journey in these buses all the way up to the mountains. And in the mountains, there are these villages where um, different tribes of uh, people live. And, and most of them are pretty separated from uh, normal society. They, they do interact. They, they grow crops. They try to sell their wares in the city at times. But we went up there. And the point of the trip was to hold an evangelistic service, kind of like a revival, if you would, um, in the village and invite kind of the neighboring community to come and to hear the gospel. Uh, we would share it through testimonies, through preaching, through some... Um, music, and uh, hopefully they would respond. Now, the team I went with was people from America, and in fact, Melody Sawasaki, I think, was there, so you can fact-check everything here with her later. Um, But we didn't speak Thai, and so we had these students who spoke Thai who were from, actually, a lot of these ethnic uh, minorities who who had become Christians, and they were with us, and they were helping us out. They were either translating or just providing the support and doing a lot of the ministry themselves. And most of these young people were people who had been brought out of really dangerous situations. Uh, They worked with other youth who were at risk, children, some of them even rescued from trafficking situations. They had believed the gospel. They had devoted their life to learning about the Bible and sharing the good news of Jesus with others. And we finally arrived at a village, or the village, where we planned to hold our evangelistic service. We had lunch together, and then we went out to the neighboring huts. They, they literally were huts, right? We walked through these dirt roads, and as we were going door to door, kind of talking to people, inviting them to come out that night, it started to rain. And it's like a jungle there, okay? Literally like a jungle, um, dirt roads and, and, and trees everywhere. It was raining, and it got harder and harder and harder. So hard, in fact, that we had to go seek refuge in the hut of a stranger. So by God's grace, I've had the experience of, of being in someone's hut halfway across the world in the rain, kind of hiding out from the downpour. While we were there, um, I I looked at what was going on. I looked at the rain coming down. I saw that the roads were getting really hard for us to even walk across and traverse. And I looked at the Thai student who was with me. And we were kind of going off in groups of like three or four. And I remember I, I, I saw this problem and I looked at him and I said, what do you guys do when it starts to rain? 
Because we had only one night to be there. We had planned for one night only for this evangelistic service. We had planned everything around that one day, and it was raining cats and dogs. You couldn't even walk to the next hut. I asked him, what do you guys do when it starts to rain? And I'll share with you his answer in a little bit. But let me ask you the same question this afternoon. What do all of you do when it starts to rain? And of course, I'm speaking figuratively. I'm not talking about the actual rain. What happens when it starts to rain in your life? What happens when you come across a problem or an obstacle or a challenge that seems to get in the way of something that is good? Something that seems like it should be what maybe even God wants for you. What happens when the rain comes, the problem comes, things get in the way of that? That's kind of what the story we're talking about in the book of 1 Samuel is about today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this book. And it's a long uh, chapter, but it's probably the most famous story in the entire book. It's the story of David and Goliath. We're not going to read the whole story at first. We're going to go through it in parts. But as you're turning there, here's just a bit of context for those of you who haven't been with us or have kind of uh, been out of the loop since we had that Proverbs miniseries. At this point in 1 Samuel, there is a change happening in the nation of Israel. God had used Samuel, who was a prophet, to kind of uh, deliver the people, lead them in righteousness, uh, deliver them from some of their enemies. And as Samuel had aged, he had given over the mantle to King Saul because the people wanted a king like the nations around them. Now, Saul was a good king for a few weeks, and he messed up. God rejected him because he rejected the Lord through disobedience. And then Samuel was kind of called back into the picture to go then and anoint a young man to be the next king of Israel. And you all know what happened. We talked about that in the past couple of weeks. David was anointed. David, the shepherd boy, the son of Jesse, was chosen to be the next king. As we get to chapter 17, though, there is a problem as we're going to see. It's a big problem. It's a problem that seems to be in the way of everything for Israel. What does that problem reveal about who David is? What does it reveal about who God is? What do our problems reveal about who we are and who God wants us to be? Well, those are the questions we're going to answer as we take the text in three parts, starting with the first part of this story where we see the fear. First Samuel 17, verses 1 through 24, we see the fear. You can read it with me. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Succah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now, the scene that's before us is a scene of battle. And the first thing that you'll notice, if you're just following along with this story, is that there are sides drawn. There's kind of a line drawn between one side and the other. And there are lots of names and lots of places. And the focus on the area, the physical land in Israel, is important. Because it highlights for us a problem that, as people living in Texas, we might not understand. But if you were an Israelite living in that day and age and you heard these things, you would understand that this was a big problem. Why? Because the Israelites are backed into a corner. See, the valley that they are encamped in is the gateway to the unprotected land of Judah. The unprotected countryside where all these cities and villages are, but they have no way to defend themselves. And so the Philistines who came from the shore, they were coming in through the valley to get to the people. 
The bad guys on one side, the good guys on the other, and they're fighting over this valley which was called the boundary of blood. That's what Ephes Damim means because there were battles fought here over and over again because of just how important this place was. And in Texas, it's not so obvious, right? There's, everything's flat. You can drive any direction you want, drive for five miles and hit a Walmart. But in Israel, that's not how it was. There are valleys and hills. If you want to get from one place to another, you go through the path of least resistance. And so Saul's army is in this valley because this is kind of the last stand. This is the, the last chance to stop this invasion, as it were, of the Philistines who are encroaching upon the nation of Israel. And as you can imagine, there are problems that would come with that happening. Death, conquest, pillage, rape, servitude. But the problem gets even more specific for us in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Not only are the Philistines about to break in, but the text tells us is that they have a monster on their side. Now, before we go any further, I think we have maybe... Uh, misconceptions about who Goliath was. When I was a kid, my conception of Goliath, because I watched a lot of Bible cartoons, is that Goliath was 100 feet tall. Right? He was like Paul Bunyan style, like a literal giant. That's not the case, okay? Um, Goliath was a human being. He was a real person, and that's actually more scary, right? As I've gotten older, I'm not afraid of like random horror movies. I'm afraid of the actual guy who did something crazy to kill people, right? That's scarier to me as an adult, as a parent, as a person. So there's this real scary guy. And what does the text tell us about him? Well, he was six cubits and a span, which if we kind of take that as best we can tell to translate it to modern day, that's somewhere between eight to nine and a half feet tall. Most men in that day were five foot, five foot six, if you were on the upper end of the spectrum. If you've ever seen a picture or that famous picture of Yao Ming and uh, Shaq and Kevin Hart, okay, it's kind of like that, but a lot bigger of a difference. Goliath is big, he's strong, he's armed with all this armor. If you put it all together, he weighs over, or all his armor weighs over 200 pounds together. If you add it up, this guy is just, like I said, he's a monster. He's a huge, intimidating specimen. When I first got married, Trisha and I, we lived on the second floor of an apartment complex where there was no um, elevator. So we had to take the stairs for everything, and we bought a used fridge from someone, and the fridge weighed 200 pounds. And uh, I brought two of my friends who are about the same build and size and age as me, and we tried to take this fridge. We, we figured, surely, 200 pounds, there's three of us, we could lift it up and take it up the stairs. And um, to my shame and the shame of my wife, we had to go get a furniture dolly because we couldn't even pick up that empty fridge altogether. This man wears 200 pounds of armor. The tip of his spear is 15 pounds. Okay, just, just imagine what the, the, you know, the physics of that, I'm not going to go into that all, how difficult it would be to wield. He's intimidating. Everything he has is metal. He's technologically superior. He's bigger. He's stronger. He has every advantage. And that's what the text wants us to see. Even in today's day and age, if we call someone a Goliath, what do we mean? We mean that they have every possible advantage in a situation. And that's what this story shows us. Goliath has every worldly advantage advantage 
over the Israelites. He seems to be an impossible problem for them, and he issues to them an impossible challenge. Verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, in ancient times, people would sometimes do what they call champion warfare, which is what he was suggesting here. Basically, one person would fight another, and the winner of that battle would determine what happens to everyone else. And the reason for it was simple. It was to prevent kind of unnecessary bloodshed. Or we'll just send our best guy, you send your best guy, whoever wins, uh, we take all the, or whoever wins, kind of wins for everyone else. This is what Goliath challenges the people with. He defies them. He defies their king. He defies their God. He mocks them. And here is where we see the first response to the problem in this passage from the people. When faced with Goliath, when faced with the prospect of war and defeat and pillage and destruction, verse 11 tells us that the people respond with fear. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. The whole point of this story so far is to paint for us a sad picture. See, these are the people of Israel. Israel meaning God fights. Think back to why they are even here to begin with. God made a covenant with Abraham hundreds of years ago that that they would inherit this land and that through them, the nations of the world would be blessed. He had saved them from the famine through Joseph. Everything that happened with that man, he had brought them down to Egypt and then he had saved them out of slavery through Moses. He had done all these things. He had brought them into the promised land through two bodies of water, fighting people who were much more experienced than them in war, and he had done it for his name's sake. And despite their horrendous sin, he had saved them over and over again with judges. And yet, in this problem, in this challenge, they're terrified. And the words here, if you translate it literally, I love the way that it's worded. You could say shattered by great fear. That's kind of what the words literally mean. They were shattered by great fear. And before we judge them too harshly, we need to realize but this is who we are often as well. It's so easy to think about David and, and Goliath and think that, yeah, I would be just like David. And we know how the story goes. But most people, when it comes to our lives and facing problems and challenges and seemingly impossible situations, we're not David and we're not Goliath. We're just like the Israelites. We're just like Saul. We're fearful. We're shattered with great fear. And I know so many people in this world, Christian and non-Christian, who that could be the, the characteristic label of their life. That they're shattered by great fear in the face of whatever problem they see, whatever challenge they face. They cannot move, they cannot act, they cannot stand. They're fearful. And the Israelites are fearful as well. Verse 12. It shifts the scene from the battlefield, from the trembling soldiers, to a small city of Bethlehem and a newly anointed king. This is kind of like a, a scene change in a movie. Now David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem in Judah. 
named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening, and Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. In the midst of all this fear, in the midst of plenty of reasons to fear, the story takes an interesting, kind of strange turn. The writer, if you look at the story, he starts to give us these details about the life of David and Jesse and his brothers that don't seem that important to what's going to happen between David and Goliath. Right? He tells us about uh, cheeses and breads and uh, how David would go back and forth between the army and home, getting a token to show that they were still alive for their father. Why does he do all this? Why does this happen in the book of 1 Samuel? Well, it's simple. The text wants us to see that while the focus of the Israelites has been only on the problem in front of them, resulting in fear, God is still at work in the background. Through mundane, daily, simple means, God is at work to set in motion the things that he has planned. Now, we need to kind of have the bigger context of this story, right, because it's important. David, in chapter 16, had been anointed the next king of Israel. Remember, his brothers come by. It's not the first one, not the second one, not the third one. They get all through, and finally, it's the last one who's out in the field. So David comes. He's anointed the next king of Israel by Samuel, the great prophet. And you know what they did after that? Nothing. Literally nothing. David went back out to watch the sheep. And Samuel went back home to Ramah, and that's it. So he's anointed as the next king. He's supposed to be the next big thing in Israel, and yet they're just doing the same thing they've been doing all along. And in the context, that's problematic. And in fact, in our eyes, that would seem problematic as well because it turns out the Philistines have been taking over Israel. So there's this new king. He's just watching sheep. The Philistines are taking over city by city, field by field, encroaching their way to the hill country of Judea. Why won't Samuel and David do anything? Don't they know that there's kind of this socio-political thing happening all around them, that there are life-altering events happening in the Valley of Elah? Yet Samuel and David, God's anointed one, they're not around. And David's not even in the army. You see that? He didn't even join the army. He's just watching the sheep going back and forth between home and his brothers. Why is this what the text, the author tells us, is to remind us and show us that in the situations where we so often fear the real problem is often that we don't recognize, or maybe we forget, or maybe we never really believed that God still got it. 
The author of 1 Samuel takes pains to show us that in this story, God is in control. He's directing the most mundane, uneventful, regular things to bring about his purposes in the way that only he can. See, after they anoint the shepherd, David is at home. He's bringing supplies to his brothers. But it just so happens that one of the days that he's there, he hears the giant. Just so happens that while he's bringing cheese and bread to the army, while he's doing the work of a delivery boy, he hears the thing that he needs to hear. David, whom God has chosen simply by being a faithful brother, son, shepherd, and deliverer, is taken to the place where God wants him to be, to hear the things God wants him to hear, so that he can respond in the way that will show us what God saw when the Lord looked upon his heart. And this leads us to the second part of the story. We see the fear of the people, and secondly, in verses 25 to 39, we see the faith. The faith. As the men are fighting or getting ready to fight in the valley below, Goliath arrives again, and the Israelites, they run and they flee. And by the way, this is something that's interesting. If you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, enough, you'll see that the people who are supposed to know God but don't really have faith in him, they're always fleeing. Right? Adam and Eve, Jonah. The Bible says flee temptation, but fleeing from problems in this world is often a sign of great fear of the world rather than fear of God. Anyways, the Israelites are fleeing before Goliath, but David doesn't flee. Read verse 25 with me. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Have you, have you seen him? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And for the first time in the book of Samuel, David now speaks. He hasn't spoken yet before. Verse 26, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. What's going on here? Well, it seems that when David hears the challenge, the people run away. They run from Goliath. David, in a sense, runs toward it. In his questioning, in his asking, what will happen to the person who kills the giant? David is pretty much suggesting that he's going to do the deed himself. And this leads, of course, to his brother being unhappy with him. Verse 28, Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Now again, this is real life. This is true. The word of God is inerrant. And here is um, a proof of how real it is. If you've ever had a sibling, you know that you see the worst in them, even when others sometimes see the best. I think maybe Eliab felt ashamed by David's boldness. Maybe he remembered that David was the one who got anointed and not him. Whatever the case was, he accuses David, and this accusation is important. Because if it were true, then David's no better than Saul. But here's the question. Did David abandon the sheep he had been called to serve? What does the text tell us? No. He had ensured that they were cared for by another. He left them with another. Did David come to make a name for himself to see the battle, as Eliab said? No, the text tells us he came to obey his father, to bless his brothers, to provide supplies to the commander. 
the accusation is important because it's false. And David isn't here for his own glory. David isn't here because he has a lust for battle. What the text shows us is that David's response to the situation doesn't have some kind of ulterior motive. His response is a response of faith. His response is a response of faith in God. And that's why he's unaffected by his brother's harsh rebuke. Because he's not worried about what other people think about him. In this moment, in the face of this problem, he's thinking mostly, maybe solely, about God. See, David, if you read this text, he's the first person to mention God in the story. He's the first person to bring up God at all. He sees this situation with the eyes of faith. An enemy that has mocked and brought scorn upon the living God. Not just someone who was taunting Israel and their king, someone who had set himself up against Yahweh of hosts. His faith gives him clarity about what he should do, and it leads eventually to an audience with the king. Back to verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. Goliath has issued a challenge. Saul has failed in his duty as a king to fight for them. The people are scared. The king is scared. But David has faith. And in verse 32, David volunteers to fight. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. And Saul, like everyone else, is looking at appearances. He's still looking at the outside He's still looking at experience in this world. He's looking at things from a human perspective. But David responds in a way that shows us faith. Saul is doubtful because David has no military experience compared to Goliath. David is confident because he has a wealth, a spiritual experience with God. Look at verse 34. David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear... And took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. It's interesting. David says the Lord will deliver him time and time again. The Lord who delivered him will deliver him now. What does this show us? It shows us that David's faith in this passage, it wasn't this one-time surge of excitement. It wasn't this this kind of one-time point where he decided he was going to have faith that he never had before. No, it's not like Samson. David shows us in his response to Saul that he has been living day by day, moment by moment, with the awareness of the presence and reality of God in his life. David lived, as the reformers would say, coram Deo, before the face of God. You see, what David shows us is that he has faith in the face of this seemingly impossible situation because faith has been the pattern of his life, even as a shepherd, which is kind of strange for us to even think about. But as a shepherd... He was living by faith. In his day-to-day life, he was living by faith. And so in this moment, his faith came out. To David, the Lord was as real as Goliath, as Saul, as his father, his brothers. The Lord was as real, more real even, than the problem before him. Where the Israelites were faithless, David's faith shined through. 
What this story also shows us then is the biblical dichotomy between fear and faith. See, true fear of God is faith. A living under his reality and rule, but to fear anything else leads us to faithlessness. And there's no shortage of people in this world, no shortage of pastors who like to talk about uh, having faith over fear. And so it's something that we need to, to be clear about. I mean, even those who have no faith in God will talk about having faith over fear. It's kind of been co-opted by every positive-thinking guru in the world. Have faith you'll become a millionaire. Have faith that your business will succeed, that you'll get a promotion, that you'll build those muscles, right? Something like that. But what does faith over fear mean according to the Bible? Is it just believing that things will turn out good? No. It's a Godward focus in everything you do. A fear of God that pushes out other fears, fearing him more than the things of the world, as we spoke about, as we spoke about in Proverbs. There is a lesson in how David views the situation before him. He views Goliath. He views the Philistine army. He views everything happening in light of who God is and what God has done and what God will do. This is what faith is for us in the problems of our lives, in the things that we see that, that, that cause us to have fear and anxiety. Do we view them in light of who the Lord is, what he has done, and what he will do? How quickly do you turn in prayer to the Lord? How quickly do you ask the question in any situation, what is God doing in this circumstance that I might need faith to see? See, living by faith in your circumstances, in your day-to-day life, means living in light of who God is and what he has said and done. What is faith then in your life? What does it look like? Maybe it means that when that phone call comes in, when you see that new disease or prognosis or suffering coming up along the road, you view that in light of a God who loves you and is sovereign and has allowed that to pass into your life through the filter of his love. Maybe it means that you see that person in your life who's been such a thorn in your side the way that Paul saw his thorn, that God wanted to show that his grace was sufficient for him. Having faith means not having every bad thing in life lead to questioning whether or not God is good, but having these problems and these situations and these challenges in life lead us to question how will God show himself to be good to me in this. You see, to have faith when it's hard, you need to live out faith when nobody else is looking in the day-to-day actions of life. Like David in his shepherding, you in your teaching, in your parenting, in your relationships, in your friendships, in everything, need to be living out this sort of Godward focus of faith. When the circumstance of Goliath brought out fear for the Israelites, it revealed in David something else. It revealed his faith. Kind of like we talked about in the counseling conference, for those of you who were there. Right? Goliath is just the heat of the situation. What comes out, the fruit that comes out, is either fear or faith. What would your day-to-day life say about whether or not you live by faith in the Lord? Would people who looked at your life understand that faith is what drives you? It's behind the decisions you make. It factors into your thoughts. What pleases God? What honors God? How can I be obedient to God? How can I learn more about the Lord? How can I be the person he wants me to be in the circumstance he has placed me in? I think sometimes we want God to 
give us this, this, this kind of infusion of faith in the difficulties of life, the big situations, and yet we haven't lived by faith, even in the small ones. We don't need a crisis to prepare for this. The Lord wants us to live by faith as a shepherd, as a worker, as a family member, every day. It's because of this living before the face of God that David had faith in the circumstance. Look back at the text, verse 37. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. And it's an ironic statement. The Lord had already left Saul and was with David as evidenced by the faith that Saul lacked and that David possessed. And this leads us to the third and final section of the passage, the fight. Verses 38 through 58, the fight. We've seen the fear, we've seen David's faith, and now we see finally the fight. And this is what all the poems and pictures and sculptures are about. Um, you know the story, so even if you're falling asleep, you can probably tell someone later that it was about David and Goliath, and you'll get the basic idea right. But we need to see what the text has to say about this familiar story for us. Starting in verse 38, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. At this point, Saul tries to give David his equipment. Now, Saul's the king. He has the best stuff of anyone in Israel. But David isn't used to it. It's not something he has fought in before, so he rejects it. He's not comfortable. He rejects the equipment. Verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with a stick? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And there's so much symbolism here. It's it's pretty awesome. I'm not talking about some weird interpretation like uh, the stones stand for the five solas of the Reformation or something like that. Um, What I'm talking about is this picture, this picture that David presents for us. The text wants us to see that. He doesn't take the armor. What's he wearing? He's wearing his shepherd clothes. He's bringing the staff that he carries with him. He's got a few stones from the brook. What it shows us is that David is not going to fight the way everyone else wants to fight. David's not going to be like Saul. He won't put on those clothes, as it were. He will fight the battle not dressed as a warrior, Even though the text tells us from chapter 16, he knew how to fight. He knew his way around a sword. He's not going to have a sword. He's not going to have a chain of mail. He's just going to go out with God. This is God's providence. In this day, when David arrives, it's God's providence, God's choice that David wouldn't have any armor with him. It's God's choice that he would come without a sword. It's God's choice that he would come dressed just like he's delivering cheese. He will be armed only by his faith in Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And this picture, like I said, is awesome. And that's why there have been so many paintings done of it. David is dressed as God wanted, like a boy with a slingshot in his work clothes. 
And Goliath, he feels offended by that. And you can understand why, right? Goliath, eight and a half, nine feet tall, decked out. He's wearing 200 pounds of armor. He's kind of mad. Like, what, what is this? You're going to bring this kid out to me? He's underestimated, he feels. But verse 46 tells us that David's lack of gear is not because David underestimates Goliath. It only looks like David is underdressed because everyone else in this story has been underestimating God. Verse 46, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And here's something you might have missed. I missed it the first dozen times I read the story. David doesn't accept Goliath's challenge. You see that? David didn't accept the challenge. Goliath says, bring out a champion, and I'll be the champion, and we'll fight, and then whoever wins, that they're going to win the whole war. But David doesn't do that. He doesn't accept it. He comes out, and he says, I am going to kill you, but it's because the Lord is against you. I'm not going to kill you because I'm the champion of Israel. I'm going to kill you because you have defied the living God. The Lord will glorify himself today, for the battle is the Lord's. And it's an incredible perspective. And it challenges our perspective. And it challenges my perspective, honestly. When I think about problems in the world that I see and, and the culture that's set against us as Christians and God's truth, I need to realize that this isn't my battle. First and foremost, this is the Lord's. He can and he will use his people for his glory, but only if we are surrendered in faith to him. To be obedient no matter the consequence no matter the circumstance, to trust his word, to preach it, to live it out, no matter the size of our problem or the impossibility of the task, to do what he has called us to do because we trust in him. God saves in his way and in his time. It is his battle and not ours. And that's why even as a church at Zoe, we are so simplistic. Preach the word of God. Preach the gospel. Pray for God's will to be done, for people to be saved. That's what we're about. If anything good is going to happen in and through this church, it's going to have to be God. When the Philistines arose, verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. That's it. Forty days of taunting. Forty days of fear. Forty days of people fleeing and hiding every day when this giant shows up. Three seconds of flight from the slingshot to the forehead. And it's over. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. God delivered Goliath to David without any other weapon than a sling and a stone. In verse 51, Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp 
And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. You see, because David didn't accept Goliath's challenge, because David fought not in man's way, but God's way, the victory over the Philistines was greater. They killed the Philistines, they chased them, they came back and they plundered their camp. They reduced this threat to Israel in this one day. Why? Because David fought God's fight. David fought God's way, but what the text tells us is actually that the Lord is the one who fought through David. It might be tempting for us to think that this story is just about being like David. That we just got to have faith like David, and yeah, we should have faith like David, a man after God's own heart. But it's not even just that. It's really about how David was used by God. God is the hero of the story. God is the one who delivers the people. God is the one who defeats the problem before them. God is the one who deserves all the glory. God is the one who took the fight. God is the one who delivered the victory. And so when it comes to our lives as Christians, even in small things and in the big things, in challenges and trials and problems before you, we need to ask the question, what kind of victory we're actually looking for? Are we looking for my victory? Or are we looking for the Lord's victory? Because a lot of times, to be honest, it's different. A lot of times my victory would look like the thing that's easiest for me. The thing that gets me out of this bind quickest with the least amount of worry, the least amount of headache, and the least number of people calling me or texting me about it. But that's not often the Lord's way. A lot of times the Lord's victory has to do with being transformed into the image of Christ. To become more and more like Him through whatever trial is facing me. The person who knows the heart of God knows that He will not share His glory with another. It's all about Him. And so what we need to be seeking in the face of problems, is what God wants from this. Faith is what God seeks, but faith doesn't detract from God's glory. It gives him the glory. It points our attention and our focus to him. And many people have talked about this before, but faith shows us how great the thing we place our faith in is. It's not about me as a person who has faith. It's about God, who I trust in. It's like a person jumping out of an airplane with a parachute, who trusts in his parachute to save him, and it would be foolish for him to think that that showed how great a parachuter he was, that he didn't crash and die on the ground. It's not his own ingenuity. It's not his own skill. It's not any of that that saves. It's the strength of the parachute. And what we see in the fight between David and Goliath is that it's the strength of God. That is highlighted. How did that stone hit his forehead? I mean, you ever stop and think about that? He's wearing a helmet. How did the stone hit his forehead? It's God. In fact, it was all God. This is what the text tells us. If you read it, it, it was impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God is the one who prepared David as a shepherd for this moment. He's the one who sent that lion and that bear to attack so that David could learn how to fight as a youth. God is the one in this story who does all the things that deserve glory and honor and praise. See, if you want to know what it means to be part of God's people, the Bible tells us time and time again, it's not what we do. It's what he does and what we experience by trusting and following him. And here's where the story ends, verse 55. 
As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, it might seem like a strange end to the story, um, but it's actually really important okay, to show us that God has been at work. Now, let me just say on the side that some people view this story, they read this passage, and they say, oh, what's going on? I thought Saul already knew David because David was playing his lyre for him uh, in chapter 16 at the end, right? Whenever he had a bad spirit, David would play the music, and that would kind of alleviate his suffering. Well, that is true, and this is true. There's no contradiction here. Um, most of you here, I know, and I have no idea who your dads are. Okay, that's just how it works. I don't know who your dads are. You don't know who my dad is. Uh, it's not a common thing to know, but it's beyond just that. Okay, there's something important in this text. Look back at verse 25. I just go back to verse 25. I know it's a long chapter. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will... Enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So what's going on here? Saul is asking about David's father. Not necessarily because he just is curious about who he is, but because of the promise that was made all the way back, verse 25. That if someone kills Goliath, that man's father's house will be free in Israel. Saul is asking about David's dad so that his pledge will be fulfilled, that the house of Jesse will be free. And this is so amazing. See, God anointed David to be the next king of Israel, right? God also had Samuel anoint Saul to be the current king of Israel. In the absolute sovereignty of God, David now taking the throne after Saul is not an insurrection. He's not an usurper of the throne. By his actions on David and Goliath, this famous battle, his family is freed. They're not the subjects of Saul in the same way everyone else is. This is incredible. God has been organizing this from the beginning to the end. He's made it so that David could be the next king and yet be so in a right and righteous way. He doesn't need to fight for the throne. He doesn't need to to be a bad subject. He will become the next king, but it will be done in God's way, in God's time in God's sovereignty. By killing Goliath, David has set free his family's house from the reign of Saul. He is in every sense the next rightful king. This is God's handiwork. If we see God rightly in this passage, what are we supposed to conclude? We're supposed to conclude that it's all him. It's always been him. The ones who please God are those who believe in him and wait on him alone. Where do you turn? Where do you place your trust? What do you look to in the face of your problems? Do Google, intelligence, your own resources, your bank account, your experience in figuring things out on your own? Or do you rely on the Lord? This is what David did, and this is what the fight in this passage challenges us to do to believe and act with expectation that God will do what he wants for his glory, and it will be good. 
I left you hanging in the mountains of Thailand, so I'll return there. Um, it was pouring rain. It was getting muddy. We had only one night to do this evangelistic outreach. And so I was worried, and I asked uh, my friend, I said, what do you do when it starts to rain? And I'll never forget how he answered me. It, it, was, um, it was unexpected. He just looked at me, and his English wasn't good, and I didn't have any ties, so we were kind of just communicating as best we could. He looked at me, and he smiled, and he did this. He said, you pray. That was it. That was his answer. And, and I was honestly shocked. I was expecting that they had a backup plan. I was like, you guys have done this like 18 times, right? You must do something when it rains, some kind of logistical answer. I thought that surely with, with all their experience, they would have a physical solution, but they didn't. They had a solution. It just wasn't the one I was looking for. You see, that man's experience, like David's, was spiritual. And this young man who had trusted in Christ for salvation, he didn't even bat an eye. And you know what? To my shame, I even asked him further. I was like, okay, you pray. Well, what happens if God doesn't answer your prayer and it keeps on raining? Okay, that was my follow-up question. And he just kind of shrugged at me. He never answered again. He shrugged at me almost like he didn't know how to answer the question I was asking. Almost like the question didn't make sense to him. And as I've thought about that story over the years, I'm more and more impressed and amazed at what he knew. See, if we could trust that God sent his only begotten son to become incarnated as a man, to live a perfect life we could never live, and to die on the cross, to be raised from the dead, if we could trust that believing in him forgives our sin and provides reconciliation with the living and true God, why would we not trust that if he desired to save some people in the mountains that day, he could make it stop raining? It made no sense. And so we prayed. We did. We prayed then and there. We prayed that it would stop raining, that we would be able to have this evangelistic outreach. And as we prayed, it began to make sense more to me who was supposed to be the pastor. It would have to be God. It's not just that faith was the best way. Faith was the only way. If you're a Christian, you need to know that this is the Bible story. When it comes to the problems that we face, the deepest needs and the greatest obstacles, it always was God. It had to be God. The Bible tells us that the greatest problem we face is the problem of sin and death. Separation from God and judgment for our sin. And if there's one thing that I know to be self-evidently true, it's that I'm a sinner. No matter what other questions I have about this world, I know that in my heart, I do what's wrong. And we deal with this problem of sin in a million ways that, that don't work. We try to hide from the truth. We try to suppress it. We try to, to, to live these morally, outwardly moral lives. And yet we cannot sidestep the fact that at the end of life, there is death for every man and woman and then judgment. But God used a future son of David. He used Jesus Christ to fight the battle that we can't fight, not with sword or spear or javelin, but with his body sacrificed, and his blood poured out for us. And the message that the Bible gives us that the battle is the Lord's is not just David's story. It's the story of every person who places their faith in him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Savior we need. He died the sinner's death. He took the punishment we deserve. He rose from the grave, and he offers life reconciliation, relationship with God if you trust in him.
See, what my Thai friend was living out was what every Christian ought to know. That God is real. That God is in control. That God is the one orchestrating everything. He knows what he is doing. We get to be part of it for our good and his glory. A few hours later, uh, the rain had cleared up. God answered the prayer. The rain had cleared up. The sun had come back out. It was dry enough for us to have that evangelistic outreach. And we had a service with a few dozen villagers and children. And at the end of the night, when they kind of had a call to salvation, there was one really, really old lady who was dealing with kind of chronic pain for, for decades in her life who came and, and she, she raised her hand and she responded to the gospel. She came to faith. It was incredible. It was miraculous. What did that experience teach me? Well, the same lesson that the story of David and Goliath can teach us today. That there are things we fear in this world, problems that we cannot overcome ourselves, but the Lord calls us as his people to live by faith. Not a generic faith or self-centered faith that things will go my way, but a biblical faith that things will always go God's way. The kind of faith that leads us to pray, to submit, to wait patiently, to act obediently, to be faithful in little things and in big things so that we may know, like the Israelites knew on that day, that there is a God in Israel. There is a God in this world. That there is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has created us and saved us for him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and, and we ask for you to let your word do work in us. Help us to trust you more. Help us to live by faith that you are good, that your words are true, that what you have done in Christ is the message that we need and not just the data of what happened but the reality that if we believe in him, if we trust in him, if we follow him, we will have life, life abundantly. We pray, God, for your grace. And Lord, I know that um, this passage is familiar. I know that there was a lot that we went over. But Lord, let us just respond now, even as we pray and we sing, respond to you knowing that it's always been you, and it has to be you. And that because you have done amazing things, Lord, we ought to give you the glory. Because you have saved us and redeemed us, and you want to change us, let us worship you for that. This time we're going to pray together just for a few moments, silently where you're at. I'm going to lead you in a couple of things in response to this message. The first thing that we want to pray for is that God would show us how we are either living by faith or by fear in the day-to-day -day moments of our life, whether we have a Godward focus, whether the reality of Him matters in the things that we do. We want to pray that God would grow that in us as a church, as individuals, and together. Why don't you take a few moments to pray for that now? God, help us to walk by faith. God, it wouldn't just be a one-time decision we once made to turn to Christ, but it would be a daily 
setting our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at your right hand. Now, secondly, why don't we pray for a problem in our lives, a situation where maybe we've been working so hard to fix it and to overcome it and to, uh, to find our own type of victory, and yet maybe we haven't thought about what kind of victory God wants for us in the face of that problem. Would you pray now that God would reveal to you that the Spirit would empower you to seek His will and His glory in whatever problem that might be on your heart and facing you in your life today? Lord, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And that good is to conform us to the image of Christ through every trial, through every tribulation, through every circumstance, through every moment. But would you do that for us as a church, even today, even this afternoon, through your word, would you bear fruit in our lives fruit according to repentance and according to faith. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior. Amen.